1: Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. Nothing much to explain here, just a listener call-in episode. And I think this one went even better than it did last time. Much more of a free-ranging, back-and-forth, follow-up question sort of conversation, which is what I am looking to have. So tell me what you think about this episode, and hopefully we'll do another one soon. All right, so what is it? Seven minutes after, that's good enough to get started. Um, less people than last time, but then I noticed, I don't know if anyone else noticed, but I forgot to actually put the link in the show notes yesterday. <laughs> 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 but uh, it's up on the- um, It's in
2: the audio, so if you read the transcript.
1: Right, it's in the the, <laughs> the, the, the subreddit too now, so, but- uh, uh, so seven people, we should be able to get some decent questions. And, and I brought Chris in as my ringer here, mm-hmm. um, everybody. This is uh Chris Messina, who you might know as the inventor of the hashtag, but you should know now as your official ombudsman for the podcast. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for waking up early, Chris. I mean, it's, it is 10 a.m., but yeah, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, Uh, Andy says, my audio sounds a little low. Does anyone else feel that way?
2: It sounds good to me. Okay.
1: Um, All right. So let's first throw this open to um, anyone that wants to raise their hand with questions. And let's see. I've got some questions lined up here, but um, uh, Chris... You actually, mm-hmm. you actually came with a question. So, do you want to talk about the Twitter hack?
2: Yeah. Um, let's see. You know, obviously, like this was like a major moment, momentary meltdown um, on the Twitterverse uh, this week. And what I found so interesting about it is that what seems to have happened is a bunch of script kiddies spread around the world who trade in OG usernames original gangster usernames are, are like typically these are mononyms or single character or some short form of, uh, of a username on social networks um, social engineered some way it seems maybe accessing an internal employee's slack um, abilities to then access an internal tool that would allow them to do various things like sending an email reset and if they were able to interu- interrupt that and essentially change the email address to which the reset link would go to now all of a sudden they had a way of actually grabbing that account and like taking it over and uh i can speak to this because this happened to me because my username on instagram is at chris and these same kids uh did the same thing to me through a social engineering attack against uh my att account so essentially what they did was they had a friend who worked at an att store and i mean like when I learned about how this like works, my mind was blown, like how insecure the world is. And then the the difficulty that I experienced. So, so first of all, let me just like walk through that. Do you mind if I walk through that? How?
1: Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Okay.
2: Cause this will, this, will, this should give you some, it, like maybe like the listeners, like a sense of what this experience is like from someone who has been hacked. Um, you know, I had two factor, uh, on, on my accounts. And at the time, Instagram didn't allow you to, um, I believe, use a, a Google Authenticator-style uh, code generator. You had to use SMS. It was something like that. And there was also this weird uh, inconsistency between the support for those Authenticator apps and SMS between desktop and mobile. And so anyways, it was like kind of like in a show shit shit situation. And so what they did was they, again, I had a friend who worked at an at and store who was able to go in and change my account to basically change my, my phone number or whatever my service so that my SIM would then be associated with their phone number. And then they could basically reset my Instagram account password, which would send a code uh, to the new phone number, which then would allow them to unlock my in- Instagram account and then take it over and then change the email address. So it's a little bit convoluted, but all you need is the weakest link, which is some poorly paid person in an AT&T right. store to make this happen. Now, I don't know if this same vector was used on Twitter, but you can imagine that whatever the security policies are for, you know, the lowly interns or whoever it is that sort of, you know, deals with uh, account issues on Twitter is probably not some executive that has like, you know, a 48 character password and, you know, three factors or something. Um, And so, I mean,
1: that's kind of like the larger question is at a company like Twitter, what I mean, we, we hope that the OPSEC is somewhat sophisticated, but would a company like Twitter know how many people exactly would be uh, would be able to be a vector for something like this? Like if you're saying that, anybody, I mean, listen, if, if someone hands you a, a paper bag full of $50,000, know, you never know who might take that $50,000, but do they know, well, there are 700 people that could be susceptible to being a vector in that capacity. I,
2: I mean, you have to know to some degree, and you have to have like, you know, logging and all the back end systems that kind of track all this stuff. But ultimately it is, it, it does come down to the people. And you could have one person, you know, that's got some friends or a friend of a friend, or, you know, someone used your laptop to do something that they shouldn't have and then let, they left themselves logged in, and suddenly now you have like a way in. Like there's just all these human, you know, failures that can occur that even if you have a very robust security apparatus you just have a bunch of inexperienced people who are on the system who don't even think about this type of exploit and leave themselves vulnerable so i like it just the 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 fact or at least as the new york times is reporting you know the people who are doing these hacks were between 19 and 21 i feel like you just don't have or or your perspective of what is important in the world is so different at that age and you're sort of like okay boomer like you're using my social platform and so i'm gonna just like you know mess with your world and throw up a bitcoin like scheme or something now presuming this is all straightforward and right. not as some massive you know ploy by the russians to detect you know to do sort of like a weakness probing or something but presuming it is just a bunch of like you know script kiddies who trade in these og usernames and wanted to like demonstrate you know that they've taken over these accounts and they also thought it would be a good way to make some crypto which you know one hundred eighteen thousand dollars or however much it ended up being is a lot of money for a 20-year-old. Um, um, you know?
1: uh, Peter, if you're there, uh, go ahead and ask your question. And by the way, if you ask a question, feel free to introduce yourself however you want or whatever.
3: Hi, I'm Peter. I live in Manhattan. Um, and I am wondering why would anyone buy a hacked Twitter user handle? Isn't it pretty obvious that Twitter would just reset it back to the original owner?
2: Uh, so there are... Kind of like a couple of answers to that. First of all, there's just this like trade in um, like showing that or demonstrating that you have the ability to do it, even though they know it will get returned back. Like uh, it was interesting when I discovered that I, well, when I figured out my hack um, at a later point, maybe a several months in the future, uh, the, the folks from Reply All, the podcast, actually reached out to me to say that they were putting together an episode and they want to interview me about my experience. And it turned out that um, they had screenshots of the Discord chat in which my username was being hacked. Mm-hmm. And then days later, they also had like more chatter about the fact that i had gotten my account back. So this is part of what they know to happen. It's not like they're trying to grab it and then hold it forever. It's sort of like capture the flag. So that's one piece of it. The other thing is that there's just like an economic um, trade in short usernames that are obscure. So for example, one might be you know, 10BTC as a username, which if you're tweeting about Bitcoin, that could actually be really good because it's short and you don't need to like, you know, have some obscure long thing that makes it look uh, bad. It actually looks like an original username, which means that that account probably is older, which means people are willing to interact with it and imagine that it's actually like legit. So the, 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 the trade in usernames has a lot to do with uh, representation of authority or of age or maturity or any of those things. And then there's another part of it, which is more about the gaming of capture the flag, uh, just to demonstrate that you could do it.
1: So, and it, it it's it's old school in two ways, in the sense that maybe even the economic benefit is sort of secondary. It's more like the the poning and like, hey, I can do this. And mm-hmm. then it's it's the old school sense of like, well, if you've got a, a shorter domain name that, or you've got Precisely. a .com, it it, it confers same thing. Whatever. Um. The, you, you also saw the reporting, and I think Twitter a- acknowledged this. That at least eight of the accounts they also downloaded the data. Um, I saw that, and that's terrifying. Download. Right now, yes, I don't think we've identified who those accounts were, but somebody said something that like, well, that rules out it being either Biden or Obama or something. I, I, I haven't read all of that stuff yet, mm-hmm. um, but uh, so what do you? Th- what's your take on the idea that? Not that this is a false flag, but hmm. that maybe th- these maybe th- th- this is a convenient cover story that there's a bunch of teenagers that did this for LOLs?
2: i mean I think for the most part certainly it could be it, it, it's one of, i forget what the what the rule or the law is that like the simplest thing is probably you know the case. Um, I do think that these kids like they have so much time on their hands it's just it's mind blowing and so like social engineering, something like this where Either they do like a password reset on some, you know, employees Slack account, which then allows them to gain access to an internal tool. And you can imagine it might be a bot or something, right? Um, that gives them internal access to reset a user's password where it's just like, you know, slash reset username and then a token or something. And it just, you know, does the thing automatically. Those types of systems are now available. So the fact that there are these, you know, younger people that are, uh, seeking interesting challenges to work on like does not surprise me. The question about downloading the data though, is a deeper concern because the actual consequence of this may actually be much greater. So it might still be the same people with the same motivation, which was to sell a bunch of Bitcoin. And what it turns out could be that uh, they then take that data and it's even more valuable to sell that on a black market. And that becomes uh, a bigger catastrophe because you can imagine all the DMs and all the other things that are like in there. um, And there could be a cascade of things that actually like happen. Um as a result of that data being out there.
1: Uh before we move on from this, when you said that th- those kids had been in touch with you, are you saying literally those same kids, you think? Or <laughs> just those kids generally, yeah. Uh
2: it, that it circle the same, the same forum. Okay. It's so sort of like, you know, uh like 8 Chan and like, you know, 4chan and stuff like that. There's this one forum which right. has been named like in, in the right. New York times, right, where right, it. it's a pretty small forum and yet you know, they're just like trophy hunters and that's, that's where they go to like share and swap these names. And it's fascinating. Like there's a bunch of these names, actually it's on all, all media platforms. It could be on, you know, Xbox, or it could be on PlayStation, like all the places where you don't even think that these names are that viable. It's just like, that's how they collect their trophies.
1: Um The, uh, yeah, if, if you want to actually get the minute by minute, like that Brian Krebs piece that I, uh, mentioned Mm -hmm. yesterday, he names, he names the people, he names the forums, he's got screenshots and all that stuff. So if you're interested in learning about, uh, these exact forums, they're there. Uh, one more, one more take on this, Chris. Um, do you, what do you think that this does reputationally to Twitter? Um, I mean, Twitter again. It's, it's an old joke, running joke on the show: the lack of respect that Twitter has had
2: in certain it's circles. Like, if you start from the bottom, yes, then, you know, you're not really losing
1: very much. As, you um, know, there, there's the jokes that maybe Twitter needs a full time CEO. <laughs> like, you know? Of course, right, right. But in terms of the fact that, like, I I don't think. I mean, I don't know, and maybe that's what this is revealing. But I don't think that something this dumb could could have happened at Facebook you know
2: uh, or, or maybe it happens all the time or maybe uh, it happens imagine, all the time and they're yeah. better
1: at like yeah. <laughs> yeah
2: yeah uh you know there'll be some you know like russian probe like later that you know unearthed mm-hmm. it and then like mm-hmm. they you know they issue their apology and like oh we're we're learning and we're getting better and it mm-hmm. just kind of goes on i like i think to me one this does a couple things you know if anybody and i know of course facebook is the one that i think people look to for you know throwing the 2016 election But increasingly, obviously, Twitter has become a much more important place for uh, kind of, you know, live, real-time emerging conversations um, in the last, you know, three and a half, four years. Twitter used to be thought of as the place you'd go to sort of like share news about your breakfast. Um, And now, of course, um, policy, uh, you know, for the United States and other countries is being pushed to that platform. Um, There, I have heard critique and criticism that suggests, you know, that Trump and other political leaders shouldn't be using insecure platforms or channels. But the reality is, you know, there are people, there was a senator recently that published the, the the op-ed in the New York Times that was full of, you know, lies and vitriol and stuff that didn't make any sense. And so uh, I think it's important that people who are in these positions are able to talk to people, you know, through the channels that people use. And if you had to authenticate and send in a driver's license or add a credit card number or something to your Twitter account in order to use the platform, that would greatly diminish the use and adoption of that platform and its effectiveness to help people to communicate. Mm. Now, is that a trade-off that we should force going forward? Uh, I don't really have a good answer for that, but I think this at least demonstrates the power of this platform. The fact that they recovered relatively quickly, the fact that they turned off all blue check marks, for example, for a period of time was something that I never thought would be possible. It also, as I told you, gave me sort of a sense of like the fragility of my connection to my account. I don't really, as much as I think I own it, you know, it's controlled by a different system, somebody else. Um, And so especially going into this election, uh, I'm very concerned about just how it will be exploited, but I don't know if this single hack um, really discredits the platform. If, If anything, it sort of just shows how powerful it really
1: is. Um, you know, we're going to move on to something else, but put a pin in that cause we might come back to that fragility question vis-a-vis like TikTok, if we have time. Um, sure. Yes. Totally. But, uh, Alex, if I still have you unmuted, Alex wanted to ask a question about Peacock. Mm. Uh,
4: yes, my name is Alex. So, um, I've just noticed that, uh, NBC, uh, launched uh, Peacock, uh, this week and, uh, it was a really great launch. I think uh, the approach of uh, doing a free tier was a brilliant move. Although I still think that uh, the fact that they are not on uh, major platforms like uh, Roku, Fire TV, and Android TV, uh, I think I think it's really uh, toned down their momentum. Because only having an Android app and an iOS app is not just good enough. Because that means the people it's like uh, the Quibi launch in some small way although I still feel it's more successful in its own way. So uh, my take is, does Peacock, Peacock really aim to uh, challenge for the global market or they, they're just focusing on the US? Because with a free tier, like on the only offering, uh, one would think that uh, they would open it up to more countries and just go after Netflix like very quickly. Because Netflix has really grown over the last month. So I just wanted to get your take on uh, why then uh, we see you focused on going for the u.s market specifically and also why they they have restricted their the, the the platforms that they are on.
1: yeah so i actually think you've hit on something that's key here that i want to talk more about hopefully in the coming weeks um which is that that free tier and what he means by free tier is that you can you don't have to pay the subscription. If you're willing to submit yourself to five minutes of commercials an hour, um, you can, it's essentially TV as we've always understood it for most for the last 50 years, <laughs> which is just, you have to endure ads. And the thing is, is that, and I, I have said this before, like that's coming up quietly as the more interesting story here. Everyone thinks this is everyone taking a shot at Netflix and how successful Netflix is. And, you know, whatever Netflix market cap is. But the, the real money is going to be made if they can do this right by the NBCs, by the whoever can do the... It's essentially just taking the $120 billion a year uh, TV advertising market and bringing it in-house. So imagine how powerful that will be for a Comcast slash NBC slash Universal slash whatever. You know, um, that uh, because th- think about it. Um, advertising on television for 70 years has been, well, we get the ratings and we get the demos and things like that. Netflix has eschewed the idea that there's so much data in terms of what people are watching and who's watching Netflix uses that data only to decide what to produce and what to maybe suggest to you. But everyone else is looking at it as like, Oh my God, if we know that there's a 23 year old Latina female in uh, California watching and, you know, like all of the data that social media has, if it's essentially this is the first chance for Madison Avenue to apply that to old school media, Um, And so while uh, the headlines that we talk about a lot has been about the whole um, uh, Netflix versus everybody else, everyone trying to to knock Netflix off the crown, in the background, what's really going on in Hollywood is the jockeying for no one wants to... I mean, some people do want to create... I think Disney definitely does uh, a, a Coke or a Pepsi to Netflix's Coke or Pepsi, Right. Everyone else in reality is just basically eventually seeing a scenario ten years from now where um, they own the full stack of of their content so that it's it 's under their brand, so they have the relationship with the consumer they have the direct relationship with the adversi- advertisers that 's not intermediated by um, you know going to Nielsen and things like that and 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 having to figure out like they would know so the holy grail for everybody is. Instead of well, you know, you're watching a football game, and so you're inundated with uh, beer ads because they know they can they can guess the demo of who's watching a football game. They'll they they will no longer have to guess because they'll know. All right, if I want to buy an ad that only targets 45 year old men that are maybe in the market for um, a, a, a Roth IRA account. They'll you'll be able to buy an ad that will only target so like you, you you'll have confidence that like ninety five percent of your ad spend is going to the to the appropriate market. That's really where it's going to be at. Um, let me real quick because I, I rambled on that a bit. But Alex, the the question about why they're focusing on the U.S. right now is this is way beyond any of our pay, pay grades. But there's so many rights issues and so many different like even though it's Comcast comcast might not necessarily have the relationships in britain or in nigeria or in india like so whereas netflix was basically a completely new uh, entity if you're a comcast y- y- you might have to go with, if you're launching in britain you might want to do it with sky you might do it in partnership with somebody else and we've seen that happen uh who who is it Amazon? Amazon prime has some partnership in India where they launched with um, some company in India um, as like a co-production or something like that. I don't know. Um, but This is what uh, Matthew Ball, the great Matthew Ball, has said about when people say, uh, well, if I was Netflix, I'd be nervous. He's always said, no, because Netflix is five years ahead of them. So that even if in the next two to three years, a Disney Plus, a Peacock or whatever does start to chip away at Netflix here in North America, Netflix is already in 130 countries and it's going to be five years before a peacock or whomever is going to be able to chase them into those other countries like in india or or nigeria or south america or wherever um so it is sort of a thing where they will want to get there eventually but right now it's sort of walking before running um and
2: uh and i think it's also though about um Playing a bit of a safer game. I mean, I, I obviously have no insider knowledge about this, but just as an outside observer, I would imagine that launching in the U.S. first allows them to do a number of things. You know, one of which is just figuring out: you know, is the app working? How do people like it? What does it feel like? Where does it need to be improved? You know, there's a bunch of stuff on Quibi's launch that just you know seemed asinine. You know, in retrospect, um, but they were able to like you know learn and then adapt it and change it and improve it. Um, I think all the rights issues are definitely. Uh, at play and are important. Um, I wonder if you know if they can show a certain amount of traction or interest in the peacock platform in the US market that also puts them in a better leveraged position to have uh, a different set of you know rights or you know value when they move into those other places um, when it comes to distributing content. I think what Brian said um, is also right on. like I think it's it's important to maybe sort of step back and take a look at like what all these players like have as assets. And then to imagine what is it they need to do to continue to you know monetize or make use of those assets going forward vis-a-vis the personalization that you know Brian is alluding to. So, for example, it's increasingly more important that any company has an individual relationship with you as an individual, as opposed to a sort of like you know collective or group um, identity. And when it comes to interactive you know set-top boxes or computer screens or phones or for example, laptops, the fact that you can have multiple users signed in at the same time is actually very important. And one uh, thing that I would just point out that that I've been seeing pushed a lot more recently is how Spotify now has a uh, duo plan so that people in the same household can basically join. So it's no longer just like for family members. but The Spotify duo is actually, I think, about segmenting listener habits so that over time Spotify can actually do a better job with either personalization or advertising or whatever it is that they have there for their long-term play and plan um, to basically build and keep that relationship longer. And if you have a joint account you know where both people are signed into the same thing and both people's preferences are expressed within the same uh, identity, that actually leads to and erodes the user experience over time because your preferences start to, I think, calcify and become more specific the longer you're using uh, a product. So that's also, I think, a big part of this. That Peacock needs to get out there to be able to understand the personalization piece in order to build that relationship long term. In order to be able to uh, present ads that convert at all uh, relative to the industry standard, which in five years is going to be, you know, really, really good. Imagine like if you had ads that were just TikTok like style, like like right. optimized for you. Right. I mean that, that is where this goes, and that's why it's like why TikTok is like such an interesting and amazing platform.
1: in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, cuts Um, I uh, Chris, do you, you have a heart out or anywhere you need to be? I'm good. Okay. Then let me let me get one question here from the um, subreddit, and then after that, Tal has a question that I specifically want you to speak to. But um, Neelish, who I don't think I see in the chat, um, had had asked, how would Apple tackle SoftBank selling ARM Holdings without having issues with antitrust? Would Apple need to buy? arm outright parts of their ip or employees or blah 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 blah. basically i i you know this was early in the week but i find the the idea of arm possibly being available endlessly fascinating and i i do not think first of all so what do we know we know that um softbank needs to raise cash softbank was considering uh, spinning it out, you know, uh, taking it public, doing an IPO, um, but they got inbound from an unidentified uh, company and s- wondering, you know, hey, we'll take ARM off your hands. I don't think that that company was Apple. I think everybody's agreed that it would be basically impossible for Apple to uh, to buy ARM outright, not because they couldn't afford it, but because there's no way I think regulators would allow. Apple to, because it, the regulators would look at it. Well, ARM chips are essentially what power uh, every smartphone, especially the Android phone. So you'd be undercutting your main uh, market rival. Um, but I think that the more interesting thing here is if you were going to threaten Apple, um, the, the, a Samsung or a Qualcomm or somebody who does not, who is not Got the actual software platform themselves, I can see it, that you could make a case that maybe would convince regulators that you could take over arm and then so the question is 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 apples is apple going to be interested even if they don 't think they can buy it? Would they have to somehow play in this game just for purely strategic reasons um, it's it's uh, I mean the real interesting scenario here is if what if a google and a Samsung and a Qualcomm all combine forces to to buy arm and then they could say to the regulators look we're we're jointly owning this and whatever but then ex- implicitly, who is that a threat against and so then you could have a scenario where Apple is running to the regulators saying, "Don't allow this sale to go through because it's it's threatening us. I think that the most likely scenario is probably that it, that Arm IPOs as an independent company, which it should. But if it, there, there's some scenario down the road, and there's plenty of precedent for this in tech history, where all of the big boys get around a table and all agree to buy it equally um, and for the purposes of either sharing the IP or whatever. Um, but I think that's the thing, and I said this on the show, the fact that Arm exists as an independent entity... And the, the fact that SoftBank was able to buy it and no one else strategically wanted to buy it four years ago blows my mind. But now that it's available, it'll be interesting to see um, if, if the, the guardrails come off this whole thing. Um, yeah, uh, so Tal, let me uh, unmute you. Uh, Chris, I think you saw this one. I, I sent it to you yesterday. Tal wants to ask about uh, open standards. mm mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, basically, just uh, the internet was built on open standards. They kind of existed until the money came, um, and uh, once the money came, all the big company, all the all the big organizations realized that uh, open was not good for them. And as such, the last like real open standard that uh, has taken hold feels like RSS. I mean, there's open so there's tons of open standards out there, but like, what are we all interacting with? Um, the most interesting thing, one to me, in in a large respect, is actually email. Even with that, because email can't can't be killed despite how much people are trying and it's because it's still got its claws back in you know forever ago with uh smtp and imap despite those being terrible um so by, my big question is 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 that ever going to be able to come back like is there any strategic reason that it would make sense for any of these big players to bring it back or uh or is there a world where maybe government regulation can uh can force some sort of open standards
1: so I'm I'm gonna kick this to Chris because this is why I'm glad Chris is here. Um if you guys don't know uh, about Chris's career, which I don't know, maybe why would you, but um he's he's worked on questions like this his entire career. And this is sort of his, his ballywig. So go ahead, Chris.
2: Yeah, I mean uh, you know, if you really want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of my my scars and all, you can go listen to uh the internet history podcast that's right, that's with, right. with Brian. <laughs> um I think the there's so many ways that I can like take apart this, this, this question to sort of, I think, understand it. And I guess I might start by understanding what the purpose of open standards are in general. Um, and I, I mean, standards at all, like standards really are about, um, interchange interoperability, the ability to, you know, write code once and then have it work across a number of different systems. Um, it's also about, I would say, you know, creating new opportunities for competition. So, You know, like if you think about what baseball is or what soccer is or football, these are all essentially sort of a a standard set of rules that everyone agrees to abide by. You know, you either put a ball in a net or in a hoop or out of a park, and that's how you get a point. And so everyone agrees that that's basically what we're going to do. And, you know, RSS basically is like, okay, let's have a uh, format for expressing news so we can move content around and syndicate it, you know, just like newspapers would do. And then we'll create a competitive environment around the content that is expressed in that format. I would uh, actually dispute the idea that one, uh, the last great sort of you know, open standard was RSS. I think there's been you know, dozens or hundreds since then. Um, and I guess as well, like what do you mean by or what are the attributes of an open standard that are interesting? Because I do think that, for example, RSS is like highly hackable, HTML is like highly hackable, SMTP, IMAP, these are all relatively simple and easy to learn. Whereas the standards that exist now, for example, WebRTC is what's causing the explosion in uh, web streaming and in voice chat and in all these other things. And that is an open standard that has been adopted and used by uh, tons of people in the the industry. So when there is an opportunity for a bunch of companies to come together and commoditize the interchange formats, then it creates a new level of uh, competition elsewhere. I think if you're talking about maybe Consumer size open standards, and in this, I think about the work that I was doing on OpenID, and that led to OAuth and other stuff like that. Uh, the the nearest place where I'm seeing that type of standards work happen is probably in the blockchain in the crypto space, um, where there at least is an interest in people all agreeing to a set of you know interchange formats, and then they're building kind of protocols and other stuff on top of it. But the underlying you know rails are kind of consistent. So, help me understand yeah. more about what you, how you're thinking about this.
3: Well, I think crypto is actually a great. Great um, <clears throat> area. I don't really follow. I'm not terribly interested in crypto. So that's sure. what, but it makes a ton of sense as an open one. Um, and I did forget about WebRTC. However, I would argue that WebRTC is not an example of something that has taken up kick. Take, for example, what we're talking on right now. Zoom mm-hmm. doesn't use it. Slack doesn't use it. Uh, I think Slack does use teams, it. Teams doesn't use it. Like all, all the major, pa- all the major care players don't use WebRTC. And most importantly, even when people do. Uh, adopt web RTC. There is no federation. There's no, I have my own web RTC server and I can talk to yours and, um, <clears throat> and so anybody can make an, a WebRTC client, right? but decentral. Yeah. I am more talking about decentralization, but that was, you know, the internet was built on decentralization. A lot of these protocols I was describing earlier were built around decentralization. Um, and that watch. is the thing well, for the nuclear holocaust.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> so the threat model is different now, and the economic imperative is also different. And so the efficiency of... So, so basically, like earlier, there was this need to build a robust network that could withstand a nuclear attack, and that also the people who were building it were largely academics and engineers and people that like really liked those problems. Now the people that seem to be building, you know, the, the building on the network, I suppose, um, are more content players. And they like the speed in which... like it becomes a coordination problem and it's much easier to coordinate between two people who have no interest in actually helping anybody else besides helping themselves and they can just like clude something together. I feel like we've also got to the point where there are so many sort of, you know, sample codes, sample projects. I mean, now we're living, you know, in the early ages of the no code movement. So the ability for people to build on those fundamental open standards, I think allows for like an enormous amount of expressiveness that the problems that those standards sought to solve were so basic in the early days of the internet that now we're working on different types of expression. So for example, if you, and I think, uh, Mastodon is a really good example of this where, uh, and and also it would be interesting to see what happens with blue sky, which is Twitter's theoretical open source decentralization effort. Um, but when you build open standards, they end up getting sort of like set in stone for some period of time. And so it's harder to have a, an incremental um, improvement of the software over time because now you have to get everyone to agree and everyone to move forward uh, sort of in lockstep. And I like the thing that I'm very interested in to see is what's going to happen with uh, the Apple Messages uh, app going forward and what's going to happen with RCS on Android as messaging systems who have to fall back to SMS become more opinionated in their expression on Individual uh, hardware. So that like, open standard sort of falls by the wayside and it becomes a question of how do you sort of up res these things? I think another analogous uh, example of this is like what hey.com did with email, where they're still using the underlying uh, mechanisms to move stuff around, but they're building an entirely new opinionated interface on the front end that could have been done much more easily if everyone just used hey as their you know, messaging system. So... I guess the the question is like, yes, you could set up your own uh, like federated WebRTC you know platform and system. I guess what are the benefits that you see coming from that?
3: Well, those are exactly it. And I, I mean, email is 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 the biggest one. And I think your your talk about messaging is very is is fairly interesting. But I think you missed the the biggest portion of it, which was okay. you're talking about whether it's interesting if Apple Messages uh, starts adopting it. Um, uh, our RC, uh, RCS or, uh, yeah. um, but uh, is, is Facebook messenger ever going to adopt RCS is, uh, is, you know, WhatsApp, any of those, and that's the bigger thing, and that's the thing that really hits everybody's life. Can I interject- any email account can hit any other email account? Can I mm-hmm.
1: interject something real quick here? Have have you have you noticed that anything that involves social, anything that involves people, I guess in a way, all of the internet involves people, but it's the the, the there's nothing that's ever been successful, open other than email, and certainly not in the social media era that has been based on an open standard, right? Uh,
2: I would. That framing feels off to me because it's all based on open standards. Right, right, right. I mean, the, we're
1: all on the internet. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I, I, was think, <laughs> I was thinking again about the idea of like, you know, Mastodon versus Twitter, right? Yeah. And and the fact that um, nothing like Twitter, uh, Twitter should be an open standard. Like, it absolutely should be a, a it started web out like being right. able to
2: interact with uh, Jabber.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. So, maybe, and, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Like, uh, The
2: thing that I think is 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 frustrating for me as a product designer and technologist, and as someone who's worked on these standards, like Mastodon is based on an open standard that I worked on, and like IBM spent I don't know how much money also working on the intellectual property to make it possible to give that standard away. Like it's actually very hard to give away intellectual property, and also to have a bunch of companies come together and agree to not uh, use patent against each other. And so we created the Open Web Foundation in order to do that, to basically create a a, a covenant that would say basically like if anybody else sues us for patent infringement, then we will all point our nukes at them and blow them up. So the open standards thing is is interesting in a lot of the machinery and mechanics of it. But the question that I would have is more about how do you create sort of unique or bespoke product experiences that are really really good and that people really really love on top of open standards. Open standards tend to be a um, a set of kind of rules for governing the very very most basic expressions of an idea or like a like a way of transiting information from one place to another um as opposed to like like messenger for example adding stickers or adding like like telegram has their own version of animated stickers that i think uses Lottie um, as it's like animation framework and you don't see that anywhere else then you see on on apple like animoji how would you encapsulate those things in a way that is um cross-platform well the way in which an animoji ex- like go from uh an iphone user to an sms user is as an mp4 which is a standard an open standard right so there's open standards all around i think what what we're i think what we're talking about is a very specific domain of potential open standards which is in the identity space which is in right. support of decentralization which is the ability for anybody to set up their own little computer or node or for any large provider to do so and to allow basically pairwise interactions between those nodes as equals. And that is something that I think the economics hasn't been proven out yet.
1: Let me reframe it this way, because this is inspired by Peter, who I'm going to let ask his question here in a second. But compare that to hardware standards, things like Mm. Bluetooth, Thunderbolt, where all of the companies seemingly will join these confederations because it's in their interest for all of them to do that. And so maybe what I was trying to get at is I I feel like when it comes to people connections, social connections, no one ever mm. sees that it's in our interest to play widely. We want to grab everyone into our umbrella, but.
2: Uh, like, again, I would push back a little bit on that um, because there, I don't think there is agreement uh, necessarily. Mm. Uh, if you go to the w3.org, there is uh, a social working group and they have produced a number of standards in this space, some of which are used by um, some of the, I wouldn't call them decentralized, but I would call them kind of, you know, discrete. Uh, like community platforms and community forums, for example. They will syndicate their activities to other uh, people in the same sort of you know network or federation using ActivityPub or some of these other standards that do exist to represent this data, right? The question though is why do we not think about them? Uh, it might be because they're too small. And so it's actually a-, a problem of the media and our attention that we're unable to see all the work that is going on to support these open standards, but they're being done by much smaller players. That don't warrant the attention of, you know, like a Facebook or oh. whatever. Like, it's interesting in the, just to say, like, put this point uh, to a head. Facebook was interested and actually did adopt Open ID back in 2008 or nine, partially because, yes, they wanted to compete on identity and they believed that they could win and they did. However, there was an interest at the time to actually create an open standard for this. And so, what I'm seeing now with what Apple's doing with their sign in with Apple thing, to me, is the most, it doesn't, it, it breaks my brain a little bit because I'm kind of like, you know, we actually designed a protocol for enabling an open identity exchange over email addresses. Email address as the identifier, that was what it was called, EAU2. And you could essentially type in your email address, it would use the domain, and it would pass you back over to the website that you came from, ask you to log in, and then it would pass a token back, which was an open ID token, and allow you to sign in. So we had solved decentralized internet identity with email back in like 2009, and yet it wasn't adopted, why?
3: Well, that's exactly that's that's really the crux of my original question which is i'm not saying i was not saying that these standards weren't created i mean open i'm pretty sure mastodon is even using open social today it is um and the the problem is that it's not being adopted or and um, the problem is it's not being widely adopted and that is a market force but just a market force does not mean us you know a natural equilibrium these companies are incentivized to do it in that way and um, I think it's a fair, cons- you know, my, my question was way too broad, and I was more speaking about the identity and communication type um, decentralization yeah. and standards, um, because, uh, like, I, I don't see a world in the in the current era where it is in any of these companies, best interests, and your, your Apple example is the exact one, like, there is an open standard, they actually don't really care even that much about creating a standard that other people adopt, they just chose not to use it because nobody else was. And... I think the crux, where I was leading with my question is actually, is this a place where governments, where we think governments, EU or US or whomever, could actually step in and say, hey, you need to provide these sort of things? And would that help with the monopoly issues that we're discussing today?
2: Yeah, so I, the, the other thing that comes to mind, because I didn't touch on the, uh, the hardware part of this, you know, Bluetooth, Thunderbolt, et cetera. Um, I think the reason why hardware consortiums make more sense um, is just because of the uh, turnover or the speed um, of of innovation. You know, if I put out you know like a DVD standard, right, and I go and I spin up uh, a supply chain and we produce you know hundreds of millions of DVD uh, readers, those are going to sit in computers for five to ten years, and they need to basically be backwards compatible for some period of time. Whereas if I build a social network and it's based on some standard and it's decentralized, and all the clients have to be, you know, updated, and they're running on machines that, you know, are behind, you know, some, I don't know, they're, whatever it is, the, the, the circumstances and the, the environment are, are different. And I think software, uh, it's very hard to get a bunch of cats to herd, uh, to all agree to, like, do the same thing for any period of time when you're in a very volatile, volatile, very competitive um, environment where people are expecting and looking for, like, the next, next new thing before the previous thing is even fully understood by everyone. So those competitive pressures, I think, greatly disincentivize people from adhering to a set of standards, which by definition are the sort of laggard outputs of a process of of figuring out what are the things that we all want as features in the software, and then how do we standardize them so that
3: they're all interoperable?
2: Does that kind of make sense?
3: It does, but I, I think you're giving I, I think you're giving too much credit to the feature set being the limiting factor here. Because I really do believe it's the it's the business interest in keeping the data internal more that's the limiting factor well, than the fea- just- the cross compatibility of the feature set. Because you can't always have like a you know as you said like a, a minimum required compatibility. And yes, you know. Twitter Open Blue can talk to Mastodon, but like the stickers won't come across well, or they'll come across as right. uh, as gifs instead of nice lottie animations. You know, there's yes. you can always fall back to these sorts of things, and that would be yes. a great feature set for for one company to say, "Hey, come over here because it's a better experience over here." And there's still competitive pressures there, but from their current status, there's no real incentive for them to go broader. Well,
1: well let me jump, let me jump yeah, in, sure. uh, Peter. You sure you didn't <laughs> want to you didn't want to say anything? He's muted himself, Alan. <laughs> Um, oh Peter, you're good. Okay. Alan, unmute yourself if you want to ask Chris your question about uh WebAssembly.
5: Mm. Um hi that uh, Brian. Um WebAssembly is an interesting new technology which has been um developed by like a consortium of all the major browser manufacturers. It, um I think it's primarily led by um Firefox. Um but it's still not been widely adopted yet. I think it's going to maybe replace JavaScript in the future. That's the, the goal. I just wondered what Chris's view on this was.
2: Um, I'll have to acknowledge my ignorance in the specifics of WebAssembly. Um, and I guess my if, if I were to do some research or try to understand it, my question would be, you know, what are the goals of it? Who is it serving? What are the competitors in the marketplace? And what are the motivations for either adopting this or not adopting it? Like, what does it enable people to do? That's faster, better. Perhaps they can build more portable applications that appear more like applications, um, as opposed to looking like tabs. Or maybe it moves away from a more proprietary um, software development um, regime, like you know Swift UI or any of the iOS type um, interface um, platforms, such that you can sort of you know write it once and run it anywhere where you have a, a capable web rendering engine. In which case, that's very good for Mozilla. Mozilla wants to promote the free web. Mozilla is very focused, I think, on kind of like a global audience um, as opposed to focused on, let's say, enabling media players or advertisers to deliver richer or better ads. And so, um, you know, I I don't really have an opinion on when or if it'll happen, but those that would be the things that I would be wondering about to figure out why there might... Like, there's been a lot of stuff that Mozilla has put out over the years that are open standards for a lot of things. And they seem to really struggle to get off the ground Um, because again, I just think that either Mozilla doesn't have the same heft that it used to. Um, and as a result, the people who want to adopt it, like, for example, I think they did WebAuth or something. There was some identity thing that they were building that was like built on OAuth and a bunch of other stuff. And I don't know that that stuff ever was adopted. I just think that the, the coordinating aspects, um, between different companies and specifically product led companies is different than it was engineering led. I think there was an interest by engineers to do a lot more of this cooperation I think product people, because they win by having better and more interesting and you know bespoke product experiences, um, are less incentivized to slow themselves down to meet the needs of a of a protocol or standard.
5: Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think the idea, main idea behind it, was to replace JavaScript because JavaScript is quite slow and unwieldy. Um, and, but
2: it's it's super accessible and has a huge install base. It's sort of like you know, like for me with the hashtag, it's probably like the dumbest idea that could possibly work. And yet, because it's ubiquitous, it's like, how are you going to convince everyone that uses social media and hashtags to like do something different? You know? Yeah, so
5: it can coexist. In fact, it's, it is quite yeah. I think totally integrated with. I think
2: that's right. And I think that's to the point about email and then messaging. That's probably maybe like the nearest thing where there will be a set of new applications that maybe are built with WebAssembly. That start to phase out uses of JavaScript because either JavaScript becomes less efficient, less secure. It's too slow. It doesn't work on like you know uh, you know VR headsets or or glasses or whatever. And so you need compiled software in order to get the efficiency gains um, that are necessary for low power computing contexts. Whereas most JavaScript is being used in a browser that's probably connected to a laptop, which probably is connected to you know a steady source of power.
5: Yeah, but it's also only mobile phone JavaScript.
3: Well, this is this is true. It's a fair point. Yeah. Um. So I I actually work uh, work in the area, and I can't really speak to the intent of it. But the area that WebAssembly is getting the most active interest is is less um, building one application everywhere that can be used, but building core aspects of an application. So if you can build out your networking stack or your you use your your application models like the data structures in one way, and then that can be shared. That's uh, that's one thing that that's one fewer thing that can diverge in implementation across all of your uh, all of your stacks. Um, and uh, and WebAssembly is pretty much is, is different aspects of it are supported by all the major browsers right now. But it is a, a broad and and growing spec. So um, like any web spec, it takes time. Mm-hmm.
5: Thanks. Oh, Brian, you're muted.
1: (laughs) Ah, there we go. Hey, uh, I, uh, yeah, we're, we are going to start to wrap up a bit, but, uh, Lon, you're the only one I think that hasn't, uh, spoken yet. So if you have a question, here's your chance. If you don't go ahead and put yourself back on mute and no, no pressure there. Um, um,
5: really, uh, I, I was primarily here just to, to listen, uh, but as long as I have you, uh, the, the the next time you're on Twit, uh, do, could you the, tell Leo to make the show uh, uh, shorter? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, listen. I, I don't need a three-hour podcast.
1: Well, listen, uh, it, let me tell you about what it's like to go on a three-hour show on a Sunday evening. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, it, it it asks a lot of the people that go on that show as well. But I, I love Leo, and I, I love doing that show. Um, um, Let me let me throw one more out there. Uh, Peter, ask your quick uh, Pixel question, and then I'll have one more question to Chris to uh, to wrap up here.
3: Okay, my question was, does it seem like Google has given up on Pixel phones uh, with the Pixel 4 and the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it so, just seems it's kind of like a, a bad attempt.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny because I kind of haven't done stories on this, but it's been percolating under... Under the waves at the moment, that like um, certain releases have been delayed, and certain things that we thought uh, announcement deadlines were have come and gone. Um, and so i don 't know like I, the reason that i haven 't done any segments on it is because there's not it 's all been rumors, and there 's been nothing to hang our hat on but yeah, if I see a story that that or a, a, a an essay that sort of talks about this there's a lot of i mean we 've always wondered how committed you know again this is another running joke how committed is Google to anything, but how committed is Google <laughs> to to hardware specifically and I mean like look you know to the, to the to the point where they they bought Motorola for however many billion dollars and gave that a go for a couple of years before, you know, letting that go. It's, um, I, my question would be, I know why, I, I think that the main reason that Google is in hardware is because they want to have a Halo smartphone. Um, but I'm wondering, like, even if they did, even if the Pixels, you know, were selling like the... You know, even a, a medium-sized Samsung phone sells. What does that really get them? Um, I, and I don't know that Google knows the answer to that. I'm sure that there are people inside of Google that are very hot on hardware and 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 and. But I like everything else with Google. It, talk about you know having so many fingers in so many pies, Google's like a, a God with, you know, 12 arms that are, you know, trying to do 12 different things at once. Um, and I just, I, I, I don't, I guess what I'm trying to say is I would not be surprised in the least if the pixel brand maybe dies. I bet they will do one more release before they would kill it. But it, then, having said that, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't, if we've never got another pixel release period
2: so it strikes me though that you know i think tal made these points about apple moving towards you know services as their new revenue stream google maybe moving towards hardware for revenue i have a hard time imagining that google is going to make that much money from hardware just because they're right. so behind in a way and in, i think brian to your point about their lack of I think conviction really that they want to be in hardware. It's kind of like a necessary evil at this point when, when again, I, to me, everything kind of comes down to like the relationship that you have with the consumer. And I do think that Google devices tend to, you know, keep you in kind of like the Google you know, world using Google services with deep integration. And it may also be a way for Google to, uh, have a deeper sense of connection to the user experience of people who use phones that have Google services or Google Play Store oh, services oh, that and, on and that.
1: let me say primarily, I guarantee you the number one reason why Pixel existed in the first place and still exists is because it 's their instead of a stick to keep uh, the Android ecosystem in check, it's sort of like, well, we'll lead by example. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That is the main... So maybe that's always going to be valuable for them, where it's like... Like, I think it's not actually that expensive for them to keep running it and to right. keep
2: doing it. I think that as a result, because there is less of a drive that, that connects you know, their revenue or their business model to the releases of their new devices, whereas in Apple's case, it does, uh, it seems to me that... Um, Wow, I lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, that Google can continue to put these devices out and these products out and it's not that big a deal.
1: Um, so very last question and I'm doing this abruptly so we can all get out of here. But um, so Chris, you and I have been talking about um, this, I, this idea of better moderated conversations in audio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked about it on the show. Chris and I have both been on Clubhouse. We've been talking about our experiences on Clubhouse. And so what you hopefully just heard for the last hour was my very strong attempt to try to run a call-in show that was closer to how conversations run on um on Clubhouse and i think i said on the show that my thoughts around this are Clubhouse and also Zoom to a degree although chris and i are going to talk about this later <laughs> about uh, my ability to manage it it's much easier to manage but my main thesis is is that there there are there's a language of the structure of a conversation that is starting to come together here. And it is tiered and it is hierarchical where, you know, I was asking people in the chat, Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to unmute you in a second, but my ability to manage, all right, this person's going to talk next. This person's going to talk like for all of the things and, and clubhouse has been controversial. I'll acknowledge, listen, Chris and I are both, privileged assholes that are on clubhouse, you know, like (laughs) I I acknowledge all that, but my main interest in it is like the ability to podcasting is is my interest and podcasting is still a broadcast model where Brian speak, you listen. (laughs) I've been amazed by the conversations I've heard on clubhouse where it is more, uh, it's more than that. It's more than just one person talking and other people listening. I, 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 I make the equation to like some of the best panels at a conference that you've ever had, where, yes, there's people on stage, but you can also bring people up to the microphone to ask questions and things like that. Um, so, Chris, I, what, what's your take on my thesis that there does need to be some sort of hierarchy here? Because, as I said on the show, the alternative is the feed uh, structure which is everybody shouting at the same time and, you know, at the top of their lungs. So what do you think about that? The idea that there does need to be some sort of hierarchical structure, but once you, if you do that in the right way, you can, you, can, you can craft interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, you know, I think the thing that, that comes to mind is that moderation is a somewhat new and underappreciated skill uh, in live content. And so we have, you know, kind of like moderation in groups on Facebook and things like that. And that's mostly like, you know, kick people out or to, you know, mute comments and things like that in a fairly asynchronous format. What you're talking about right now and what I think Clubhouse does is it brings a form of uh, like very low hierarchy. In other words, there's sort of like the, the host and then there's moderators who are up on stage. And they can eat like demote. Yeah, let me let me describe that
1: because that'll make you understand what I was trying to do this whole time. So on Clubhouse, someone starts a room. Anyone can go into the room, right? And the. The, the whoever started the room basically allows people to talk like it, you raise your hand and it's like all right come on stage on stage is the metaphor they use and you can go back off stage or whatever you can come and go you can leave or whatever but the 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 tools that they have that are better that i've just experienced is the ability for me to see all right someone wants to talk okay someone has a follow-up someone like i was sort of like cutting and pasting that together on the fly <laughs> to, to, to do that with the tools that that um I guess is what that I'm saying has, right? is that yeah.
2: you're, you're sort of like closing this together yeah. with the set of tools that zoom provides. And I think you can feel the scenes mm-hmm. where the software is not smoothing that process out. And, you know, there's another app that I've uh, just started to explore called chalk, which is kind of like clubhouse and signal had a baby where mm. there's live chat and there's um, like voice. And then there's also a chat room and you can share media and like, There's like screenshot notifications, like all this stuff going on. And it's like so overwhelming. Um, But I think they're trying to merge these forms, just as like you're asking for people to ask questions in the Zoom chat. You're then having partial attention in keeping your eyes kind of on the chat, which means you're sort of reading, which means that you're not like 100% here present. And that's not a critique. That's just Mm -hmm. you're using the software. I think what Clubhouse does by, keeping chat out of the experience and giving you tools to basically promote people is that you stay very present. And the type of energy that is created between the speakers and the people listening and then the people who come up on stage and say something and then people who, you know, are asked to sit back down again, it creates a much more flowing kind of experience. And so the reason why that is significant is twofold. One is that it makes for an engaging conversation that's live, that's happening in real time. And I think as a secondary product, if you were to record that and then cut it and then You know, publish it, that too would also possibly be more engaging after the fact, right? Because if I'm listening to this conversation after the fact, and let's say there was like a side conversation going on in the chat, but I'm only listening to this as a podcast, I've lost a lot of that context. So by forcing everyone to share meaning in the same channel, that I think uh, is leading to the type of thing that you're describing as being possible with this type of uh, semi-moderated conversation space.
1: Yes, this is what we're all sort of feeling our way in the dark towards. Something. All I know is that, uh, again, acknowledging uh, Clubhouse controversies, Clubhouse is good in the sense that I have, uh, it's the signal-to-noise ratio in the sense that if I tune into a random conversation, I'm likely to hear something interesting. Uh, like, there's less, I mean, there's plenty well,
2: even of, if you do, so maybe this is another very important mm-hmm. point, is that... Uh, the uh, and unfortunately they, they renamed the button it used to say got to go by with like little like mm. piece fingers um but you can leave quietly which essentially means that it's very easy to pop into a group or right. a room not say a goddamn thing kind of like just listen along and see if there's anything that piques your interest and if you're not interested you can leave and so there's no reservation there's no signing up on eventbrite there's no kind of need for you to you know make your interest overt and you can kind of lean towards a conversation and kind of like listen in and if it draws you in then you stay yeah. and you yeah. you know slowly find a seat in the back and then as people leave towards the front you sort of move up to this front like you can become as engaged as you want, progressively as opposed to being either in or out or sort of you know shopping around
1: yeah and you that point that you made about how you don't have to be very like you can literally put your phone in your pocket and walk around doing other things. And yeah. then just when something interests you, you can raise your hand and come in. That that idea that, like you're saying, th- you're not distracted by the emojis and the chat and the things like that, that's that's pretty crucial too. But my, my main overwhelming point about Clubhouse is that, and yes, there have been heated conversations that have happened in there, but in general, people are able to have conversations without shouting, at least thus far. Um, and I'm just curious about how that can be brought out to other things and i'm specifically curious about how that can be brought out to to podcasts (laughs) um so thank you chris thank you everyone uh that joined us today for helping me actively feel my way in the dark to see if we can replicate that um and we'll do another one of these uh a month or two from now thanks guys sweet thanks Thank thank
5: you cheers bye see you later brian later